conclusion, and we'd wrap up some of these ideas. And I just want to say that, that there is no way that I can answer all of the potential problems and questions and issues in the subject of salvation. So we're going to do a, a summary today, and I'm going to give you something. It's actually, I've already given it to you. It's on the, the, one of the pages with your bulletin. It says salvation at the top, and, uh, and it's a, a short statement about salvation, and we're going to get into it in a minute. Um, so I've, I'm going to give you a summary, but I'm not going to satisfy every question that there is, and, and there's kind of a good point about that. If I could satisfy all the questions, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as beautiful. There's something about the depth of beauty of God's character, about God's plan of redemption that we're going to be looking at for ages to come, uh, not, not just sermon series to come, but like throughout eternity, I think, because it's about getting to know God. And we'll explore that in a minute. I want to start with our, uh, a couple people, fictitious people, Susan and Bill. Uh, Susan and Bill were yelling at each other again. They'd been distant for weeks. Uh, she'd been cold. He'd been home late, and it had happened again. He blamed her. She accused him. Another fight was making them wonder what had attracted them to each other in the first place. And, you know, their attraction, when you go back to the very beginning of it, it's like one of those typical love stories. They, they met in high school. He was athletic and powerful, and she was energetic and cheerful, and he was thoughtful and chivalrous, and she was attentive and interested. And they spent every moment they could with each other, and that wasn't enough, so they got married, so they didn't have to spend any moment apart. Relationships in our world are always filled with sin. There's no way to get around it. We're going to bring it into a relationship no matter how beautiful it begins, a relationship is going to have sin. And, and what had started out being an intertwining of souls for Susan and Bill ended up being a, a place of bitterness and anger and disappointment. I'd like to explore a different kind of love story today. And I think it's important that we, that we couch this subject of salvation in a love story because if you read the Bible, it's impossible to escape the idea of God's passionate love for us and his desire for relationship. So we're going to, in our last in the series, get in the boat. This one's called Atonement, and I'll explain why it's called Atonement in a minute. Uh, and, and this message is, it, it's interesting because we've looked at, um, what, Augustine and Pelagius and the, the struggle they had between sanctification and justification. And then we, we stepped forward in time and we looked at uh, a guy named Calvin and his um, friend Luther we didn't really touch on Zwingli, but he was in the mix too. And, and then we, uh, we looked at a guy named Jacobus Arminius and his response. And, and the struggle that they were having was over predestination or choice. And what does it mean all to the glory of God? We even explored some uh, the, the five solas of the Reformation and uh, looked at that for just a minute. And, and so today, what we're going to try to do is wrap up that story and look at what uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches, and hopefully, I think, from my perspective, what the Bible teaches about who God is, who we are, and uh, what the, the solution is. How does He relate to us? So let's open our story in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 seems like a good place to start in the story of salvation, and we're going to read the entire Bible. No, not... I'm, I'm, just, just one verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The, the word here that is used for God, how many of you know what the word is? Shout it out if you know it. Elohim. It, and it, the word is unique because it's not just in the beginning God. It, it's like he said, in the beginning God's. If I introduced myself that way, I said, uh, hi, my name is Jason's. You'd probably think there's something wrong with him. <laughs> he, he doesn't get the picture here, right? Now, the Shema uh, or Shema, not exactly sure how to say that one. In Deuteronomy 6.4, it's a, something that the Jewish culture, you say this a lot, and uh, it's, it, it's a, a reminder of who our God is. And, and this one, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the word one here is uh, the word echad. And I, I have no idea if I'm saying that right, but you get the idea. Um, echad is a, it's not a singularity. It's not like the number one or an individual. It's a, a unity. So you have to have more than one in order to have a unity. So this is a plural concept as well. So in, in uh, 1 John 4, 8, when John calls God a God of love, he's saying the, the very foundation of who God is, is a plural relationship, meaning, you know, there's more than one. There's, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, his very nature, before anything else existed, was a plurality of unity, perfect unity. And if it was anything other than love, if God's foundation was anything other than love, then we wouldn't have God. We would have God and anti-God. We'd have the yin and the yang, right? We'd have the darkness and the light. This concept, and it's, it's one that uh, a lot of religions kind of gravitate towards, multiple gods, but the Bible does not describe that. It describes one God. Kind of like if I walked up to you, and I had my wife and my kids here, and I said, um, hi, we're the wharfs. Suddenly, that makes a bit more sense than, uh, hi, I'm Jason's. And, and so when God introduces himself at the very beginning, he says, in the beginning, Elohim, the Ehad Elohim, the unity of, of God. And then in Genesis 126, we find this added component. He, he makes mankind. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. And so humanity is brought into existence with a uh, well, with choice. They have freedom. They have free will. In fact, God said, here is your playground. Have fun. And I think that God probably, especially since he said so, I think God probably expected them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with a society of benevolence and love, just like God, Elohim, was a society of benevolence and love. Since he created us in his likeness, he created us for relationship. And is it possible to be in a loving relationship with somebody who forces you to be in a relationship with them? If you've ever had a relationship where you just feel like you are out of control, then you know that it is, it is that lack of control that, that eliminates the possibility of love. You, you can't have both a controlled relationship and a love relationship. And so God creates us with the expectation of a love relationship with him. 
And the stage is set for bliss and for wonderful things. And, and uh, the problem is liberty, freedom, it carries danger. I know this because every time I give my children liberty, there is danger involved. <laughs> and uh, you know this too. It's, it's part of life. Whenever there's freedom, there's the possibility of bad choices. And God gave Adam and Eve this earth to do with whatever they pleased. Um, and, uh, and, and if you look at the verse, Psalm 115.16, he makes it very clear. He's got his domain, and then he's given mankind their domain. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. God gave Adam and Eve this wonderful place, and then the next thing they did is they abdicated their authority to a usurper, somebody who came to instigate a coup against God. And they handed over to this guy who was once called Lucifer. We know him as Satan. In John 12, 31, he's called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. This is somehow a guy who's taken over because Adam and Eve said yes to him, and, and, they, and they gave him the authority that they had been given. Because they decided that instead of following God's guidance, they would define truth and righteousness and justice and and good for themselves, which really was just saying, okay, Satan, whatever you said sounds good to me. They gave it into his hands. And in response to Satan's authority grab, God had to do something, and he immediately began to put in place um, the, the counterattack to reclaim earth. But in order to understand this counterattack, this response from God to the problem, we have to understand a few things. First of all, who is God? And we already define God as this, this plurality of loving relationships, three in one, and, and God, it's the very foundation of his character is love and relationship. And so he creates us in his likeness. And the next question we have to answer is, who are we? Who are we? Well, we were created with freedom. And then we enslaved ourselves to Satan. But there's something important when we abdicated to Satan. There's two components to that. Uh, one, of, one of them is a personal component, there's a power that Satan has over us. And the other is a legal component. Um, there's a, an authority, a territorial issue at stake now. And so what's the problem? The, the problem that we're facing is that we have an inclination to sin, to, to go about our own way, just like Adam and Eve said, I'm going to take that fruit and I'm going to figure out what this knowledge of evil is. And we get the opportunity to do that, to choose wrong. And we tend to do that more often than we choose right. Right? So there's an there's a inclination to reject the relationship with God. And then the, the, the second problem, this, this kind of territorial problem, in order for God to take back our world, he needs, he needs to solve Satan's claim on planet Earth. So what's the solution? The solution is it's really kind of complicated and kind of simple at the same time. God has to solve both of these problems, the problem with my heart and the problem with the universe being impacted by Satan's um, authority grab. 
And if you look at Genesis 3.15, as soon as Adam and Eve have failed, God steps in and he says this to Satan. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does the word enmity mean? Somebody, somebody say it loud so I can hear Conflict. I will put conflict between you. Now, that doesn't sound good, but, but it is good because the alternative is we are completely controlled. Conflict is only possible when there is a response, right? When I say, wait, I don't like that you're controlling me. I, I, want, uh, I, I want something different than you're demanding of me right here. Conflict is a good thing in this environment because it gives us possibility, possibility of salvation. We'll come back to this idea in, in a minute. But this enmity that is promised provides the opportunity for life and for redemption. Keep in mind, if, if we're in a loving relationship with God, the Creator, there's no problem there, right? But as soon as there's conflict, relationships go, grow cold and people get separated, and, and that's what happens with God. We're separated from Him emotionally and spiritually and even physically. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. And, and when you're separated from the one who created you and sustains your life, there's a significant problem. We can't sustain our own life. And, and the, the natural automatic response to separation from God should be death, the, the loss of life. Not because God's cruel and, and mean and tyrannical and he says, oh, you ate that apple, you die. That's not the way that God responds. It's just that, that, oh, I chose to live life on my own terms, and now I don't want to be anywhere near God. There's going to be a separation of the life force that God sustains us with, which would mean I would die. And, and so that, that problem, God steps into that when he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the, this, the woman. He's saying, I'm going to create the possibility for life, and I'm going to create the possibility for redemption as well. So God makes this promise to put enmity, and then he puts the promise not on Adam and Eve to fight hard and, and figure this out, but he puts the promise on a seed of Adam and Eve. The seed that we find this, the, the, the interpretation of that in the New Testament is Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, the um, God who came to be like us. Revelation 12, 7 to 9 introduces kind of a, the backstory to the problem that we're facing. Because when we look at, at the solution as Jesus and, and what he's going to do, you have to realize that the problem started not on earth, but way back before earth with this guy, uh, Lucifer, in heaven. And Revelation twelve seven to 9 says, uh, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of, whom, of, of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this battle that began in heaven came to this earth, Adam and Eve handedly opened the door to, to Satan. And now, now Satan, is he the anti-God? Is he the equivalent of God in this story? In this story, he's a created being that rebels. Freedom of choice, he rebels. Now, if, if he's a created being, he's not the anti-God, the, the, the darkness that 
I don't know, levels out the light. You know how, how some religions talk about this, the yin and the yang. If he's not the equal of God, then, and, and he's a created being, and he exercises his freedom of choice and separates himself from God, then shouldn't he die? Shouldn't he just cease to exist? Well, the question we have to ask is, why doesn't God stop sustaining Satan's life? Why doesn't he just let him go? There's two possible responses that I can imagine, and you can probably think of one or two more, but we'll just start with my two. First of all, the option that we could come to is that God likes to play games. Think about it. It's as though he were to set up a, a, a board of, of uh, little creatures and, uh, and, and, and kind of look at how things might work out and then hit the play button and watch it work. And then when it's all said and done, he collapses and says, wow, what an inventive guy I am. That's option one. Now, maybe that's a little bit sadistic in how I presented it, but that's, that's the general idea. God designed this to work the way it is. That's option one. Option two is that God is love, created us with the freedom to freely love him back, and that freedom made it possible for Satan to reject God's love and also to draw others away in deception and... and uh, uh, who knows what else he did in order to try to, to get everybody. Maybe he bribed people. Who knows? But he, he gets them to come to his side and also rebel against God. And that seed of doubt created the possibility for everybody else in the universe, angels and whoever else God makes, to also have the same kind of doubt and rebellion that Satan has. And the only way to solve this problem is to let it play out and demonstrate who Satan really is and what rebellion against God really is and who God really is. So option one, God is in control of every aspect. He designed it to work this way. Option two, God is a God of love and because of freedom, he allows a problem to happen, not without a solution, but he, he allows it to play out so that he can be, he can demonstrate his love and that people will freely love him back rather than be, being controlled by him. So God, he becomes man. Jesus was born the son of God, the son of Mary. He, he gives up some of his divinity, not, not, not his divinity, but his divine prerogatives, things like the omnipresence, and he, he stays in the body of a man for, well, for eternity, actually. We found that, that, that um, since the time he became a, a baby, um, even through to the time that the second coming happens, at least, the Bible says that people are going to ask, what are those scars in your hands? And Revelation describes Jesus with a, a human body. So he's, he's given up some prerogatives of God, become like us. In fact, Romans 8, 3 says, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Our, our brokenness, our uh, deficiencies in, in uh, mental capacity and physical capacity, all of that Jesus took on himself. It's as though we were in a pit with sides that couldn't be scaled, way too tall for us to, to get to, and, and Jesus were to come by and say, you've got a problem, let me help you, and then he stepped into the pit with us. The same problems, the same challenges we face, he stepped into, and, and in order to give us a solution. He, instead of Adam's and Eve's failure to follow God and trust God, and instead, they just said, yeah, Satan, whatever you say. When Jesus met Satan, he said, I'm going to trust God. And to every um, temptation, to every challenge that Satan gave him, he said, it is written. 
and, and he stood in trust with God. And he lived this life of righteousness, perfect righteousness. The Bible says that he's spotless, without sin, perfect. And then he, he ends up on the tree, the cross. And in that, in that moment, the Bible says that he bore the sins of everybody. On, him, on his shoulders, the guilt of our sin was placed. And he's, he's hanging there on the cross, already physically separated from the Father, and now feeling spiritually and emotionally separated from him. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that true separation that sin brings, and he died that death Praise God, he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected, and he has, uh, the, the Bible says he, he has the keys to, to death and hell. It's, he's, he's solved the problem of sin and death with his death. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this idea that Jesus' perfect righteousness and, and the fact that he took on our sin, he kind of did a swap. He took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. And, and so when Jesus dies on the cross, and especially when he's resurrected and ascended to the throne in heaven, Satan is defeated. His, his um, authority over the world is taken back. He's, Jesus has taken the place of Adam as the, the guy who's in charge of this world. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. No longer is Satan sitting above the world as though he's in charge, the usurper. Now he is cast down and Jesus is in charge again. But Satan's way of doing authority is to trick and to uh, connive and to control and, and to force. Is that God's way? If it was, then God would have done something differently than he did. When Jesus died on the cross, he would have been like, go away, Satan, I got this now. And then you would have all been Christians and uh, followers of Jesus. In fact, everybody in the world would have been because that's how authority, uh, controlling authority works. He just kind of twists everybody around and says, all right, now, now we're good. I've, I've taken it back. But he's not like that. And so instead, he, he, while he's in charge, he gives us the opportunity to choose him. He's not interested in being the king of the earth. He made that. It's just a rock, whatever. What he's interested in is being the king of our hearts, and that requires us to choose him. Yes, Jesus is the legal ruler of the world, and he wants to be the ruler of our hearts. Now, the question we have to ask is, are we really free to choose? Is that really a freedom that God has given us? Yeah, we are free to choose. God, at the very beginning where the problem happens, God says, I'm going to put, what was the word? Enmity? I'm going to put conflict in the mix here. And, and it's as though that work of putting enmity is an active thing the Holy Spirit does. The, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's role is to convict us of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. It's like the Holy Spirit comes into our experience. We're incapable bound by sin, bound by Satan, incapable of even recognizing that we've got a problem. And the Holy Spirit prompts our hearts and says, hey, there, there's, a, there's a better way that you could be living. And he creates dissatisfaction inside us. Have you ever felt that dissatisfaction with your life? You look at what you're doing and you're just like, ugh, this isn't that fun. I don't really like this. 
uh, I'm kind of hurting myself, I'm hurting my family, whatever, and you just feel dissatisfied. You might not have a solution, you might not know what to do at that point, but you feel dissatisfied. That's enmity. That's the Holy Spirit doing a work to create a desire for something different. In fact, I would suggest every desire that you have for good, every intention for being nice to people or for being, doing good to your own body, that's the Holy Spirit putting enmity between you and Satan, between you and sin. Arminius, that guy we talked about last week, Arminius said that this work of the Holy Spirit is prevenient grace, prevenient grace. Remember I, I talked about that last week, pre meaning before and venient meaning intervene, and that's my interpretation of it anyway. I can't figure out any other. Um, it's, not, it's a kind of a made-up word that Arminius uh, created, and it's just basically God intervening. Before we ever had the idea of God, before we even looked to Him, He intervenes in our life, and He says, I've, I, I want something better for you. Do you want it to? And He gives us the possibility of freedom of will we use the word salvation. It's a kind of a biblical word. We get it from the Bible. And, and sure, you can be saved from a burning building or saved from a, a, a ship that's going down or saved from a disease. There's lots of ways that you could be saved. But the idea of salvation in a theological perspective comes from the Bible. And the word in the Bible is sozo. You've heard that word before, right? Sozo. Now, sozo, the Greek word, it, it, it just means like, like you've been, the, the problem has been solved for you. But it's, it's kind of nuanced because if you were sick, somebody would sozo you. They'd save you by healing you. If, if there is a broken relationship, sozo is in the mix in healing that relationship. If there's a sin problem, sozo is part of that sin problem. It's the saving. So ways that it's translated is pulled out, helped, received, accepted, uh, given victory, delivered, healed, saved, brought, or bring. Most of these words are relational words. To bring, to, del- to accept, to receive, to help. These are, are words that are connected to not just a, a, a theological term for writing our name as righteous in heaven. There's a, there's a connection that God's wanting to make with this idea of salvation in the Bible. So look at John 17, John 17, 21 to 23. And Jesus says this idea about salvation is, is more than just... Uh, some just uh, some some legal thing in heaven he says that they may be one just as you father are in me and i in you so they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me i have given to them that they may be one even as we are one i in them you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me one. This idea of one. I want, I want them to be one. Is that the number one? No, this is the same one as the Shema, that they may be united, that, that unity of plurality, the, the loving relationship. God's solution to the problem of us separating ourselves from Him and going our own way, and the legal problem of Satan being in charge of the world, is to step in, take Satan's place, and then seek a relationship with us to make us at one with God. 
Atonement is another biblical word, and, and it's really just this smashing of ideas together into one word, at one meant. Uh, if, you just, if you take mint off the side, um, then it becomes, because this is the noun version, if you take the mint out of the end, then it ends up being atone, and that's the verb part of it. And, and that's an active pursuit of oneness. To atone is something that a young man would do with a young woman, <laughs> When he tries to win her heart, he's trying to make them one, right? That's what marriage is about, at one meant. Um, and, and this is the whole idea in salvation. We've been broken apart from God. He wants to make us at one again. Jesus said in John, thir- John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus is lifted up, and then in John 12, uh, verse 32, he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's drawing us to him. Everybody in the world has this Uh, the Holy Spirit saying, hey, look and live. And then Jesus, through God's word, through the preaching of his word, through tracks and uh, websites and podcasts and whatever other mechanism through, maybe it's the, an angel in a dream. At some point, God is saying to every person in this world, look to Jesus, look and live. And he says, I'm going to draw all men unto me. And is that, is that a, a drawing that, that we have to respond to, or can we resist the drawing of Jesus? We have to be able to resist. If we're not able to resist, then it's not one. It's not at-one-ment. It's at-forcement or something. It's not, it's not about unity. It's not about love. It's about control. And so it's, it's definitely a resistible um, drawing, but, but it's God's pursuit of everyone on earth. So then we get to, to the crucifixion. Oh, I meant to, to mention this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Hey, God so loved who? A small piece of the world? No, the, the entire world. He loved all mankind so much that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, and is that, that uh, who, some who believe or some who are chosen? That whoever believes in Him, the option is open to anybody, should not perish but have eternal life. And, and the idea of eternal life isn't just some uh, um, retirement plan after death. Does anybody have a, a 401k that you're not supposed to touch until you retire? Maybe you're retired and you're touching it now, but, but if you have a 401k, you're supposed to just ignore it as though it doesn't exist until the time that you take it out in retirement, right? A little bit at a time. This is not the idea of salvation. Eternal life isn't just something that happens when you get to heaven after death, after the second coming or whatever that scenario is. It's something that begins at the time that Jesus begins to make you at one with him. Today is the beginning of eternal life. Not then, it's not, it's not a retirement account. It's money in the bank, so to speak. It's, it's a relationship that you have today. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, brings us into the story. So far, God has been the one. Jesus has been the one who's solving the problem. Satan and, and, and us have rebelled against God, and God comes with Jesus, and he solves the problem of Satan being in charge of the world, and, and he pursues us and draws us to him in love. 
But Galatians 2.20 says that we've got a part to play. We have a response opportunity. And it, it goes like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I, uh, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The story of salvation is a story of death. Yeah, it's the death of Jesus. He's the one that initiated that. But it's also the death of me. In order for me to be at one with God, I have to die. All that ties me to Satan has to die. All that ties me to my own plans and my own definition of righteousness has to die. In fact, Paul compares this bondage that we have to sin with the covenant of marriage. And, And what breaks a marriage? Ignore the divorce option. What breaks a marriage? Until death do us part. And so Paul compares our bondage to sin with marriage and says that in order for us to have the inheritance of Christ, we have to we have to be dead first to the sin. Uh, we have to break that covenant that we've made with sin and Satan. And so the call is for us to die and then be born to a new life. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. So the life that I'm living right now, it's Christ's life living in me. It, it's different than what it was before. And this new life is a life of surrendered relationship. It's, it's not oppressive religiosity. It's not begrudging obedience to a list of rules. This is relationship. There's no sense in which salvation is oppressive or controlling or manipulative. God could not be a God of love and operate with any of those principles. So let's go back to our story of Susan and Bill. Let's think about this idea of at-one-ment in that context. There's only one way that this marriage can, can uh, move back together from their separatedness, their argumentation, their um, anger, their frustration, their coldness, all of the stuff that separates them physically and emotionally, all of those things are going to continue to deepen and worsen over time unless both of the parties choose to die. She has to die by confessing her wrongdoing and isolating herself from the relationship. She has to sacrifice all the legitimate claims that she has and the the reasons for her bitterness. She has to die to all of those things that keep her from relationship with her husband. And you know what? The, The guy has to do the same thing. He has to die by confessing that he was wrong in staying late at work or in whatever he was doing in, in separating himself from her. And the, the um, frustration and, and the um, disengagement from their relationship and all the legitimate reasons he had for that, he has to lay those aside as well. And it's that sinful response that has to be countered by the death of confession and forgiveness. In our story, God initiated this cycle for us. Even though he didn't do anything wrong, um, husbands, have you, ever, have you ever had an experience where you were completely in the right and you knew the only way to move forward was to admit that you were wrong? <laughs> you ever done that? You have to say, I'm sorry, even though you don't feel like you're at fault at all. This is kind of the position that God was in. In winning our hearts, he had to say, I'll take the wrong 
I'll die as though I was the one who sinned. And so he does. He, he starts the cycle of at one moment by dying in, on our behalf. He became sin for us. And now the choice is up to us. Will we take that step in death, in relational death, to create the possibility of relationship and oneness with God again? Some people say that uh, they believe in Jesus and they've accepted him as their savior. And then they go about life as though, as though they really weren't in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, Jesus longs for people with pitying love. He, he pursues people that even are angry with him, mad at him, curse him. Jesus loves those people. But then some of us as Christians, we look at those people and we know we are righter than they are. And so in our righteousness, our self-righteousness really, we stand above them in superiority and we, we condemn them and we judge them and we gossip about them. And we even think that we're righteous in doing it because we are so good compared to them. That's not the relationship that God has with people, is it? And if we're truly following Jesus and we're dead to ourselves and we're, and we're bring, becoming one with him, shouldn't that transform who we are to other people? The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, Paul says. Some, Jesus lived for mercy and justice for the weak, but some people claiming Christ subvert the needy to accomplish their own desires for wealth. And then they say that God must be blessing them because they're doing so well. Uh, Jesus gave bread to the hungry and he gave his clothes to the naked, but some people can't even be bothered to help people who can't figure out life for themselves. They're like, nah, they don't deserve it. But is that the way Jesus responds in loving relationship? Jesus calls himself the truth personified, but uh, some people claiming to be Christians, claiming to be followers of Christ, feel like it's perfectly acceptable for them to lie and practice deceit whenever it uh, benefits them. Situational ethics. These so-called Christians, followers of Jesus, they're practicing religion for nothing. It doesn't really matter what you claim is not the significant thing. The question is, did you die? And is Christ living in you now? That's what salvation is all about. It has nothing to do with you coming to church, though the implication is if you're connected with Christ, then you're going to enjoy spending time with other people who are. And there's a, a corporate worship component. Church isn't unimportant, but, but it's not that you come to church that makes the relationship work. It's that you've died emotionally and spiritually, and you've died to the, the bonds of sin, etc. Galatians 5.16, Paul says this to the Galatians. He, he earlier said, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ now lives in me. He, he says it in a different way in chapter 5. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit? What does that mean? Galatians 5.22 to 24 He's just described the works of the flesh and what it is to be connected with Satan and doing things our own way, and it's envy and jealousy and, and, and conflict and, and um, all kinds of interesting things. You can read about it in uh, Galatians five nineteen through 21. But in verse 22, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, what it means to walk by the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, the life transformation that, that salvation gives is a change of heart. 
Jesus changes who we are. How many of you would like to be patient in adversity? How many of you would like to have love even when people aren't loving to you? How many of you would like to express joy when life is not the best? These are things that we all need, don't we? And this is what at one meant with God implies, that He's going to bring these things to us. Not, not because we work them up, I'm going to love whether I like it or not. No, because He has created in us a new heart, a new life, because Jesus is living in us and the Spirit is being expressed through us. He puts it another way in Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared... What's the grace of God? Well, it's by bringing salvation to all men. Isn't that great? The, the drawing all men to him, the salvation available to everybody. And then he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the death to, to myself, the death to sin, etc. And then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's living, that's walking by the Spirit, letting Christ live in me. Um, and then he says... Um, I, I just lost my place. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. Um, there we go. Whoops. I was having help and didn't realize it. Um, waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then and there's something that, that's really important about what he says next. Who, this is Jesus, gave himself for us to, for two things, to redeem us from all lawlessness, well, that's Satan's control, and that's the, the power of sin in our lives. But then there's a second component, to purify us uh, for himself, a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous of good works. And, and Peter qualifies what it means. He says that when, when these people are doing good things, that people will look at them and they'll be like, wow, Tim, you're just such a good person. Is that what he says? No, Peter says they'll look at somebody like Tim and say, Tim, God is really amazing. If you're anything like God, he is really amazing. Because they're going to look at, at our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, not us. Because it's all to the glory of God. One more chart. Do you mind the charts that I've shared the last couple of weeks? I'm, I'm going to share one more chart, and it's going to kind of bring it all together. And, and, uh, and then I'm going to teach you a song. Because we need to learn a song um, that... And I've got it on your bulletin, so you can take it home with you. And if you have a guitar, I even gave you chords so you can play it. We talked early on, and I don't know if you can see the details here, but we talked about this idea of all to the glory of God and uh, the Reformation principles that are in there, sola scripturis, sola fide, sola gracia, um, soli deo gloria. Anyway, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, um, through Christ alone, um, Scripture alone, and to God's glory alone. These were the principles. And I think that, that they were really great. Augustine and Zwingli and Luther and Calvin, they did, it, they did the best they could in the context that they were responding to to figure this out. But, but I think they missed the character of God. They missed the big story. And, and while they said it's all to the glory of God, they said it's all to the glory of a God we can't comprehend, a God that seems to be in charge of everything, controlling everything, even designing evil, and somehow it's all going to end up to his glory, praise God. Thankfully, some of us will be saved. That, that was kind of their conclusion, and, and I, I don't know if you can see it. Do you see the dot above this weird word, philosophical monergism? <laughs> 
Monergism means one energy, one power. Okay, so monogism, monergism. To God's glory alone, he's the one that does the work, period. And so there's, there's a dot there. No cooperation. There's this thing called passive justification. I get Christ's righteousness. That's the alien part, alien righteousness. It's not my own righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And then they, they believe that we're totally depraved, sold to sin, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and God chose some to be saved and some to be lost. But they missed the big picture, I think. Then we looked at the next story, which was Pelagius, kind of at the right side of that line. Now, notice the line. The line is a connection between God and me. It's not a dot, monergism anymore. Now it's synergism, and that's not biblical. The idea of synergism is I'll reach out my hand, and God will reach down his hand to me, and hopefully somewhere in the middle we'll end up with salvation. And this is the teaching of the Catholic Church. It was the teaching of Pelagius. It's also the teaching of semi-Pelagianism. That's, don't worry about that. We talked about it for a moment. But legalism, any idea that I have a part to play, we call it legalism. And sinless perfection, something that our church is struggling with today. And then there's... Uh, and, and you can see there's degrees of depravity in this mix. I'm kind of depraved. I'm mostly depraved. I'm not depraved at all. I'm good. I, I've got uh, moral neutrality. I can do right or wrong. And, and that's kind of where we end up with atheism on the far right end of the scale. Morally neutral. I can choose good. I can choose bad. And, uh, well, there's no God. There's no salvation. And in a, in a sense, this is kind of monergism. Any, any good doing is me, my energy. Um, so on, on the, the left, it's God's work. On the right, it's my work. And in the middle, it's something in between. So the, the last part of the story, the story we just told today, is the story of biblical monosynergism. <laughs> that was a word that uh, my professor Darius made up. I did not make it up. It's, it's his idea. Um, and, and this idea is that it's God's work alone, but he invites us to cooperate with him. It's no longer a dot there at the top. At the top, it's a, it's a work that glorifies God alone because he initiates it on us through that prevenient grace. And then when, he, when we accept him, he does the work of saving us. And he, he does the work of putting the Holy Spirit in us and creating a new heart that desires love and, and peace and joy and faithfulness and kindness and goodness and self-control and all those things that are the fruit of the Spirit. It's all God's glory, but we get to say, I'm in God. I choose you. I want you. And, and so this is the teaching of Arminius. This is the teaching of Wesley and Ellen White and, and Seventh-day Adventism. And we'll put a question mark beside that because there's some parts in Seventh-day Adventism who aren't sure about this. And you might not have been sure about it until I talked about it today. You might still not be sure about it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but there's this idea. Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, there's a lifeless faculty of the soul. This idea that we're dead totally depraved, incapable of, of working our own salvation and meriting anything. And then there's prevenient grace. The Holy Spirit interjects himself into our lives, creating that enmity between us and Satan and sin and, and gives us the opportunity of wanting something good, pointing us to the cross. And it's at the cross that we get Christ's righteousness. And, and it transforms us. It's not just some passive justification that happens in heaven, but it's a transformative experience. Some people think about this transformative justification as sanctification because it's Christ's 
justifying work applied over and over and over and over again all throughout our lives. So on the, uh, on the paper that I gave you, I promised a simple and, and a brief uh, perspective on salvation, something that you can share with your neighbors and your friends, and, and here it is. And I've, got, I've even got a bunch of scripture verses at the bottom, so you can do some study on this, make sure we're good. In infinite love and mercy, God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need. That's the prevenient grace. We acknowledge our sinfulness, we repent of our transgressions, and we exercise faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, substitute and example. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. This saving faith comes through the divine power of the Word and is the gift of God's grace. Through Christ, we are justified, adopted as God's sons and daughters, and delivered from the lordship of sin. Through the Spirit, we are born again and sanctified. The Spirit renews our minds, writes God's law of love in our hearts, and we are given the power to live a holy life. Abiding in Him, we become partakers of the divine nature and have the assurance of salvation now and in the judgment. Is that an idea of salvation that you can get behind? Can you say amen to that? There's so much in the story of salvation that we just can't, we can't touch. It's impossible for us to get to it all. And, uh, and so I'm going to challenge you to do some additional study. Explore like, how the church fits into this picture of salvation, because it's in the mix. It doesn't cause our salvation, but it's in the mix. And, and how does um, the, this stuff in heaven work? And we haven't touched on the sanctuary. We haven't talked about so many things. Uh, I just encourage you to explore those ideas in more depth. But for now, can I teach you a, a song? something to take home with you? Okay. Brigida, I'm, I'm going to get some help. Oh, no, I don't, I don't have anything to hold it up with. I need something to put my foot on. There. I didn't think of everything. Imagine that. I'm sorry to whoever gave this, this beautiful table. I'll try not to scratch it at all. We need to move over so I can see. This is well-planned, as you can tell. This is getting back to church. Could you put this, the, the slides up on the screen? There are some slides for this. You have it on your, in your hand as well. But I'd like to, to teach the song to you. So, so Brigida and I are going to sing the first verse. And then, hopefully not too awkwardly, we're going to go back and allow you to sing the first verse with us. Then we're going to sing the chorus. And then we're going to go back and let you sing the chorus with us. And then we'll go from the chorus into the second verse. And then we'll sing the chorus one more time. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore every cost we were given, that we fought the good fight, that we finished the course, knowing within us the power of the risen Lord. All right, your turn. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore 
Every cross we were given, that we fought a good fight, that we finished the course, knowing within us the power of the risen Lord. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song, by mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song Till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song Again Let let the cross Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song by mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. Till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. Let it be said of us. We were marked by forgiveness, we were known by our love, and delighted in meekness, we were ruled by his peace, heeding unity's call, joined as one body that Christ might be seen by all. Let the cross be our glory, and the Lord be our song. By mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong. Let the cross be our glory, and the Lord be our song. Till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known. Let the cross be our glory, and the Lord be our song. Thank you. Ellen White says that we're going to be learning about the science and song of salvation through all eternity. I hope that this is an instigator for you to do some more learning about that song. Will you stand with me as we sing our closing hymn?